You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the previous lectures, we have shown that modern science, as we know it now, has Christian roots. And in this lecture, I would like to discuss what happens when it finds itself in an alien soil. And this can happen in two ways. Either a Christian country can be taken over by an alien ideology, or science can be introduced into a non-Christian culture. Two examples of the former are provided by science in Nazi Germany and in Soviet Russia, while examples of the latter are to be found in Eastern countries, notably India, China and Japan. And in this lecture I want to talk about science in Nazi Germany and in Soviet Russia. The European domination by Nazi Germany was fortunately rather brief, although highly unpleasant, and is within our personal experiences. And it shows how, in a very few years, the science in a country with one of the highest reputations for excellence in science can be almost destroyed by an alien ideology. Over the centuries, German contributions to science have been of the highest order, and German science was flourishing when Hitler came to power in the early 1930s. Nazi ideology was based on the superiority of the Aryan race that was destined to rule the world, and from this followed the inferiority of other nations, particularly of the Jews, who were expelled from their university posts and forced to flee overseas. In spite of their political skill, the Nazis had no understanding of the importance of science, not only for itself, but also as the foundation of Germany's immensely strong chemical industry. Karl Bosch warned Hitler that the expulsion of Jewish scientists was ruining German science, only to be told, then we will do without physics and chemistry for the next hundred years. In their speeches, the Nazis promised to rid German academic life of all traces of Jewishness. This even extended to scientific theories due to Jewish scientists, and the particular object of their venom was Einstein's theory of relativity. Hitler appointed party stalwart Bernhard Rust as Minister for Science and Technology. He was an ex-elementary school teacher who had been dismissed four years previously for mental instability, and his qualifications for the post were his early party membership and his fanatical belief in Aryan superiority. The universities were soon controlled by the Nazis, and each faculty had a Dozentenführer responsible for Nazification, who ensured that only party members were promoted. About 3,000 academics were dismissed for being Jewish or politically unreliable. The name of Einstein is a reminder that the highest eminence was no protection. He was briefly in Oxford before going on, like so many others, to the United States. Bourne and Frank were two other eminent physicists who had to leave, as well as a large number of younger scientists. They were welcomed in Britain and the United States, and made great contributions to the scientific life in those countries. Einstein went to the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton, Bourne was appointed to the Chair of Natural Philosophy, that is Physics, in Edinburgh, and Frank went on to a high position in the United States. 
Rutherford in England led a public appeal for funds to support refugee scientists when they arrived in England, often having left all their possessions behind. Cambridge even welcomed the ailing Harbour, who had made immense contributions to the German chemical industry. Not only the Harbour process for fixing nitrogen, so important for manufacturing explosives, but also the process for manufacturing poison gas. It has been suggested that the welcome extended to these refugees was simply a shrewd move on the part of these countries to secure for themselves first-rate scientists at low cost. Kurt Mendelssohn, who came to Oxford, he was himself a refugee who later made great contributions to science in Oxford, says that nothing could be further from the true facts, and it is the duty of those who benefited by this manifestation of academic solidarity to repudiate this explanation emphatically. It was done for humanitarian motives and academic solidarity and as a protest against Nazi barbarism with its ruthless contempt for learning and scholarship. Furthermore, the most eminent of the refugees were beyond the age of their greatest achievements and most of them were relatively young and unknown. German physicists reacted in different ways to the Nazi policies. A few, like the Nobel laureates Lenard and Stark, supported the Nazi regime and rose to positions of great power. Lenard became president of the Physikalische Technische Reichenstalt after the previous director Passion, a Jew, was dismissed. Many lesser men, seizing their opportunity, used their party membership to attain positions they would never have reached on their scientific merits. Thus Wilhelm Müller wrote a book on the international Jewish conspiracy to pervert science and destroy humanity and he was appointed to succeed Arnold Sommerfeld, one of the greatest of the quantum theorists in Munich. On the occasion of Muller's inauguration, Stark castigated white Jews, that is Aryans who taught in the Jewish spirit, such as Planck and Heisenberg, who continued to accept Jewish science, such as the theory of relativity. Others, such as Max von Lauer, spoke out with great courage against the Nazis and endangered their very lives. The majority, while disliking what was going on, decided that the best thing to do was to keep their heads down and preserve what they could of German science so that it could flourish again in better times. The leader of the German physicists, Max Planck, an honourable and upright man of the old school, was appalled at what was happening. Already in his seventies, when the Nazis came to power, and president of the Kaiser Wilhelm Gesellschaft, he could well have retired. He went to see personally Hitler in 1933 in his capacity as secretary of the Prussian Academy of Sciences and asked Hitler to reconsider his anti-Jewish policies. Predictably, he failed to make any impression on Hitler and was treated to a characteristic anti-Jewish tirade. Planck decided that it was his duty to stay at his post and do what he could to protect German science without compromising his principles. There was very little resistance from the academic community. As Mendelssohn remarked, the spirit of resignation was aptly put into words by Otto Hahn, who in 1966 said in his autobiography, As acting director, I tried to soften especially harsh orders from the people in power, but of course I couldn't do anything about the general situation. And Einstein has recalled, When the revolution came to Germany, I looked to the newspaper editors who in times past had proclaimed their love of freedom, but they were soon silenced. Then I looked to the universities, but they too were silenced. Only the church stood squarely in the path of Hitler's aggression. 
I am thus forced to declare that what I once despised, I now unreservedly praise. Werner Heisenberg, the brilliant young theoretician who gained the Nobel Prize at the age of 32 for his work on quantum mechanics, was torn in two. An ardent nationalist, he longed to see the triumph of Germany, but he was also disturbed by what was happening to German universities. He was urged by friends in the United States to emigrate while he had the chance, but he considered that his duty was to remain in Germany. The early history of the atomic bomb strikingly illustrates both the failure of the Nazis to understand the importance of science and the dramatic deterioration of German science that resulted from their policies. Fission was actually discovered in Berlin by Hahn and Strassmann in 1939, and its importance was realized by Otto Frisch, an Austrian who had emigrated to England. He joined Rudolf Piles, a German refugee who was working in Birmingham, and together they made the vital calculation of the amount of fissile material needed to make a practicable atomic bomb. They found that it was just a few tens of kilograms, small enough to be carried by a bomber, and they immediately realized that the future of humanity was changed forever. They alerted the British government in a short memorandum that outlined the future possibilities with great prescience. If Hitler had encouraged and supported science, all these men might have remained in Germany, and the course of history would have been somewhat different. After the outbreak of war, when it became known that it might be possible to make an atomic bomb, Heisenberg was asked to lead the research program. He accepted this appointment and gathered together a team of scientists. They tried to build a reactor, but thought that it would be impossible to make a bomb. Even the much larger efforts in the United States didn't succeed until the war in Europe was over. It has been recently maintained that Heisenberg deliberately held back for moral reasons in contrast to the Allied scientists at Los Alamos who actually made the bombs that were dropped on Japan. And this is completely incorrect. Heisenberg would have made the bomb if he could, but the scale of his effort was quite inadequate, and his knowledge of the requisite nuclear physics was not nearly detailed enough. This has been confirmed recently by the release of the Farm Hall transcripts, giving the conversations of the captured German scientists when they heard about the use of the atomic bomb. The duration of Nazi power in Germany was fortunately relatively brief, and so German science could recover and has now recovered its former vigor, whereas the duration of Marxism in Russia was much greater. And this therefore provides a better opportunity to assess the effect of an alien ideology on the status of scientific research. So now I'd like to talk about science in Soviet Russia. For many decades, Soviet science enjoyed high prestige. The Soviets set up the first artificial satellite, the Sputnik, and we frequently read about Soviet triumphs in every branch of science. However, there have been few serious attempts to analyze objectively the standard of Soviet science. There is perhaps a good reason for this. The higher the prestige of Soviet science, the more likely were Western governments to make available funds for research and development in order to ensure that we kept pace and, if possible, surpass the Soviet achievements. Sputnik was the bombshell that galvanized the United States government into providing massive support for American science, and it was thus to everyone's benefit to maintain the idea of the high prestige of Soviet science. But what is the truth? Inevitably, it is complicated. Modern science developed in Western Europe, and including Russia, in the subsequent centuries. And the basic question is how well it has flourished now under Marx-Leninism. It is a proud claim of that political system 
that it is essentially a scientific view of the world, and if this is so, we would expect science to flourish more than in other political systems. In the pages of Das Kapital, Marx compared his method to that used by physicists and claimed to have discovered a basic set of rules unconditionally valid in both natural and social sciences. This is a large claim with momentous consequences. If it is true, then science under Marxism is set on its right course and should flourish as never before. But if it is false, and if that same Marxism has complete political power, then the stage is set for the enslavement of science. Which of these alternatives is true can be discovered by an examination of the development of science in the Soviet Union after the revolution. By their fruits, you shall know them. Marx himself had little scientific knowledge and relied on Engels to develop the theory of the application of dialectical materialism to the sciences. Like so many addicts of scientism, Engels was able to read into science the results he wanted to obtain, and was thus able to produce from physics an apparently overwhelming documentation of the validity of the laws of the dialectic. He firmly told scientists that under Marxism they would no longer be able to do as they please. Whatever pose scientists adopt, he said, philosophy rules over them. The question is only whether you want to be ruled by some vile fashionable philosophy or whether you want to be ruled by a form of theoretical thought that is grounded on acquaintance with the history of thought and its achievements, that is from Engels' Dialectics of Nature. And after this it is hardly surprising that Engels lays down a whole series of rules that physics is supposed to obey, rules that are invariably erroneous. The roots of this folly may be traced back to Hegel, well known for his ability to legislate about the behavior of the material world, and with such a mentor it is not surprising that in his Dialectics of Nature Engels castigates a whole galaxy of physicists, including Maxwell, Helmholtz, Clausius, Carnot, Thomson, and Tate. Even Newton is not exempt. He is criticizing for only picturing the universe instead of explaining it. Engels was quite clear about the relation of science to philosophy, by which he meant dialectical materialism. Scientists are of necessity in bondage to philosophy, he said. It was for Engels an evident truth that philosophy could by itself yield results superior to those attainable by science itself. Scientists could have seen even from the succession in natural science achieved by philosophy that the latter possessed something that was superior to them even in their own special sphere. Once again, if this is true, then it is of the greatest importance, and every scientist should, as an essential part of his scientific training, take care to fully absorb the principles and spirit of dialectical materialism. Physics, however, is rarely so pliable to the demands of the dialectic, and any new discovery that seemed to cross his wishes arouse Engels' special wrath. The concept of entropy, for example, seemed to be contrary to one of his cherished notions, the eternal cycles of matter. The conclusions of science, according to Engels, are arrived at not by the arduous road of observation and experiment, but come forth fully armed from dialectical materialism like Pallas Athene from the head of Jupiter. Physics, he wrote, like astronomy before it, had arrived at a result that necessarily pointed to the eternal cycles of matter in motion as the ultimate reality. The leading physicists of the time were, however, unaware of the startling result. For Engels, science is not a source of objective knowledge, but the slave of dialectical materialism. In the midst of his revolutionary activity, 
Lenin was aware of the revolutionary changes in physics in the early years of the 20th century, and he saw a connection between the two revolutions. Modern physics is in travail, he wrote, giving birth to dialectical materialism. The process of childbirth is painful. In addition to a living, healthy body, there are bound to be produced certain dead products, refuse fit only for the garbage heap. And the entire school of physical idealism, the entire empirico-critical philosophy, together with imperio-symbolism, imperio-monism, and so on, must be regarded as such refuge. He greeted with enthusiasm the discoveries of radioactivity, radio waves, and x-rays, while realizing that they spelt the end of mechanical materialism. With admirable flexibility, he insisted that the destructibility of the atom, its inexhaustibility, the immutability of all forms of matter, have always been the stronghold of dialectical materialism. All boundaries in nature are conditional, relative, movable, and express the gradual approximation of our reason towards the knowledge of matter. Those are his writings in a book called Materialism and Empirico-Criticism. Already we see in these words of Lenin that in some sense the dialectic responds to the advance of science. There is on the surface an inconsistency between the subservience of science to the dialectic taught by Engels and the growth of dialectical materialism out of science described by Lenin. Perhaps, however, it is unfair to read too much into the writings of a busy revolutionary, and better to conclude that in their view science and dialectical materialism are joined in a symbiotic resonance that shows both these aspects at different times. At the beginning of the Soviet Revolution, it was proclaimed that science is based on the iron rock of materialist dialectical thought, and notices to that effect appeared in the Soviet scientific journals. Scientists in Germany wrote to their Soviet colleagues, saying that they were very interested to hear about this new scientific method, and would they please send someone to tell them about it. The Soviet scientists, who didn't believe it themselves, were much embarrassed by this invitation. They carried out their work much as before, in accord with the inner logic of scientific growth, paying whatever lip service to party dogma was required of them. The political pressures existed from the very beginning, but Soviet scientists learned to insulate themselves as best they could. During the 1920s, the revolutionaries were preoccupied by the crumbling economy and by internal struggles, and generally left the scientists alone. Russian physicists were free to travel, and many worked for years in Göttingen, Cambridge, and American universities. Most of them were uninterested in Marxism and avoided ideological discussions. By 1929, the situation was somewhat easier for the party, and Stalin turned his attention to science. By April 1931, Bukharin was threatening scientists with moral and physical guillotine, meaning the systematic imposition of Marxism. Throughout the 1930s, scientists were forced to subscribe to Marxist doctrine, and many who resisted were purged from the scientific academy. Among the scientists who came to England at that time was Peter Kapitza, who worked with Rutherford in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. He made important researches on magnetism, but in the mid-thirties the Soviet authorities realized his value, and he was told during a visit home that henceforth he would work in the Soviet Union. He was not even permitted to return to Cambridge, but Rutherford arranged for his experimental equipment to be sent to Russia so that he could continue his work there. During the war years, the struggle for survival left little time for scientific work, but as soon as the war was over, 
the battle between science and Marxism was resumed. In a speech in 1947, Zadanov called for a fight against countless philosophical weeds and against the whole arsenal of philosophical lackeys of imperialism and even against smuggling God into science. Einstein's theory of relativity was condemned and the theory of molecular bonding suffered the same fate. Genetics was destroyed by Lysenko and Vavilov, the greatest of the Russian geneticists, was exiled to his death in Siberia. However, the following extract from the newspaper Pravda gives the Soviet version. And this is a quote. There is no country in the world where the state shows such care of science and scientists as our country. The bourgeois states leave science in the power of capitalist monopolies and condemn scientists to sell themselves to the exploiters or to be left to starvation and misery. The Soviet state annually spends thousands of millions of rubles for scientific establishments and improving the living conditions of scientists. Scientific workers, they continued, of all branches of the leading Soviet science work in an honorable and at the same time a responsible way. The great Stalin put before them the task not only of catching up with scientific achievements abroad but also surpassing them in the near future. The Soviet scientists are solving this task successfully and this is particularly clear from the August session of the Lenin Academy of Agricultural Sciences of the USSR. Academicians Lysenko's report on the situation in biological science and the discussions of this report during the session showed that Soviet biological science is the most advanced in the world. Michurin's materialistic trend in biology is the only scientific one because it is based on the principles of dialectical materialism, the revolutionary transformation of the world in the interests of people. The Weissmann-Morgan idealistic trend in biology is pseudo-scientific because it is ultimately based on the admission of divine origin in the development of the world, on the passive adaptation of man to permanent and unchanging laws of nature. The struggle of Maturin's followers with those of Weissmann is a form of the class ideological struggle of socialism against capitalism on the international arena and against the remnants of bourgeois ideology among a section of scientists inside our own country. That is an extract from the editorial in Pravda of the 27th of August 1948. Eventually, of course, Lysenko was exposed as a fraud and the science of genetics was re-established. In 1952, Kuznetsov, another party theoretician, wrote on the relation of science to dialectical materialism and claimed that Soviet physics is the standard barrier for the most modern and progressive ideas of contemporary natural science. Turning his attention to relativity, he declared that the development of science can only be secured by the total renunciation of Einstein's conception without compromise or half measure. Physicists of the stature of Landau, one of the greatest of the Soviet theoretical physicists, who were hitherto kept out of the ideological disputes, rebelled against this nonsense. They could argue from a secure position of strength. Whatever the Marxist theoreticians may say, the real world goes on behaving according to its intrinsic nature. You may rewrite history to your heart's content, and if you control the media and the educational system, no one will stop you. But if you insist on designing a nuclear accelerator without using Einstein's equations, then on the great day when you switch it on for the first time, nothing will happen. The physicists had no difficulty in tearing to shreds the diatribes of the party theoreticians. One of them, Fock, 
compared Maximoff's rejection of relativity to the denial of the sphericity of the Earth. Experiences such as these convince the party that science, especially physics because of its relation to industry, must be accorded some measure of autonomy. It was not, however, possible to allow science the freedom it needs for healthy growth. It must still be subjected to the demands of dialectical materialism. Soviet science then moved into a new phase. The scientists must be allowed to carry on their work according to scientific criteria, but the aims of the research must be governed by the needs of society. And at first sight this seems eminently reasonable. The technological applications of science are continually transforming our lives, and as society pays for scientific research, it appears very sensible to concentrate our efforts on those areas that appear to be the most likely to yield practical benefits. It is of course accepted that technology should be guided by this criterion, but the vital question is whether academic or pure science should be governed in this way. And this is the essential issue in the debate between Bernal and Polanyi in England in the 1940s, and Bernal arguing for the state direction of science, and Polanyi for the freedom of science. Bernal wrote an influential book called The Social Function of Science, and he and his supporters were vigorously opposed by a group of scientists who founded in Oxford in 1940 the Society for the Freedom of Science. Their leading spokesman, Polanyi, argued that science must be allowed to develop according to its own intrinsic criteria, allowing scientists to choose their subjects for research, for only then can all important areas be developed. This may in certain respects appear wasteful and inefficient, but it is the necessary condition for growth. A wise government will therefore confine itself to providing support for what appears to be the most promising growth areas as judged by the scientists themselves. The alternative of state direction requires the selection of growth areas by leading scientists followed by directions to individual scientists saying what problems they are to study. There may appear at first sight to be little difference between the two methods, but in actual practice it is crucial. On the former system, the individual scientist chooses his area of research, although he still has to apply for whatever support he may need, while on the other it is chosen for him. The fatal weakness of state direction is that it saps the responsibility of the individual and makes him a cog in the state machine. Knowing that some of the most important decisions are taken for him, he is less inclined to scan the horizon for promising new developments. The state research directors inevitably lose touch with the whole field, become dated in their outlook, and tend to support areas of research of interest to themselves personally, or with fairly foreseeable practical applications. The result is that in some areas research flourishes, while in others are neglected, and the whole level of expertise in the subject falls. The main strength of state direction appears when there is a well-defined objective, such as to make an atomic bomb or to launch a satellite. And even these achievements, it may be noted, relied greatly on Western science, the one on international work at Los Alamos, and the other on the German research at Penemundi, which was taken over by the Red Army at the end of the war. In pure science, the results of state direction are less impressive. The whole development of nuclear structure physics was blighted because Kapitza was not in favor of Van de Graaff accelerators, which have proved to be essential tools in nuclear structure research. The Soviet accelerator at Dubna, like most Soviet instruments, was designed to be the biggest in the world. 
It was certainly one of the heaviest, with 30,000 tons of steel alone, but it was heavily and clumsily engineered and never fulfilled its high hopes. Soviet computers are slow and inefficient by Western standards, and the Soviet copy of Concorde, the supersonic airliner, was a monumental failure. So great is the intrinsic vitality of science and the natural vitality of the Russian people that excellent work continues to be done even under the most severe disadvantages. And Tam, Migdal, Cherenkov, Kurchatov, Fock, Boglyubov, Vexler, Kapitzler, Markov and Sakharov are names that will always be remembered by physicists. Yet even these experienced difficulties in the Stalin regime. A single remark in the biography of Landau by Anna Livanova hints at his incarceration. In one burdensome year, Landau reconstructed for himself the theory of shock waves, and he made all the calculations mentally without pen or paper. And the reason for that, of course, was that he was in prison and didn't have any pencil and paper, so he had to do it all in his head. The abrupt termination of Kapitza's Cambridge career has already been mentioned. When he learned that he could not return to Cambridge, he wrote poignantly to Rutherford, After all, we are only small particles of floating matter in a stream which we call fate. After that, we can manage to deflect our tracks slightly and keep afloat. The stream governs. These sad and resigned words may be set beside those of one of the greatest Russian scientists, Mendeleev, who lived in Tsarist times, when he wrote, Knowing how contented, joyous and free is the life in the realms of science, one fervently wishes that one may enter its portals. Sociologists fared no better. In his book on sociology, Alex Inkeles remarked that, quote, the Soviet regime was not long in power in Russia before most of her sociologists were either driven out of the country or purged. Sociology is defined in the Soviet Union as a bourgeois social science engaged in only by the lackeys and the wage slaves of capitalism who use it to counter the true Marxist-Leninist social science. Sociology suffered a similar fate in communist China. Before the communist takeover, there were more than 1,000 students studying sociology under some 140 teachers in Chinese colleges and universities. The new regime stamped out these activities completely to replace them by new courses on Marxism. Dr. Sun Pen Wen author of what was the leading treatise on sociology before the new regime takeover, sent the following chilling response to an American sociologist who wrote requesting a set of his works. And he wrote, I have come to understand that all my books are only good for burning, and hence I have none to send you. I have also learned that I formerly neglected to study the works of Karl Marx, which I am now doing many hours a day. Please don't write again. A purge of physiologists was set in train in 1950 when a joint session of the Academy of Science of the USSR with the Academy of Medical Science called for a unified front to defend Pavlov's materialist teachings against the reactionary assaults of men like Sherrington, Lashley, Fulton and other Western idealist physiologists. More recently, the treatment of Sakharov has received much publicity. A distinguished scientist with many contributions to cosmology and to elementary particle physics, and also as the designer of the Soviet hydrogen bomb, he has become an outstanding spokesman for human rights and disarmament. Several years ago he was banished without trial to Gorky 
and almost totally isolated. The KGB removed his notebooks and manuscripts in an attempt to stop his intellectual activity. His son's fiancée, Elisaveta Alexieva, was for a long time prevented from leaving the Soviet Union and permission was finally obtained only after a hunger strike by Sakharov himself. There are many other scientists in Russia who have suffered a similar or worse fate. Yuri Orlov has been in a labor camp since 1978. Joseph Dyadkin was sent to a labor camp for making a demographic survey of persons who died in Stalin's time. Witko Brylovsky, the organizer of the Moscow Sunday seminars, has been harassed and arrested. Vladimir Kislik has been sentenced to three years in a labor camp on a fabricated charge and prevented from emigrating. These and many other similar actions were taken either without trial or after trials conducted in flagrant violation of statutory procedures, such as the absence of defending counsel. In the labor camps, they suffer solitary confinement, cold and hunger, restriction of correspondence, and capricious cancellation of family visits. This is now a familiar pattern stretching back more than 50 years, one of the fruits of Marxism. One of the inevitable results is a lowering of the standards of science. The deficiencies of Soviet science are admitted even by those who are wont to praise it enthusiastically. Thus Dr. Needham says that when he visited Russia, the laboratories in 1935, the general standard of work was not quite up to the prevailing standards in Western countries or in the United States. And even Professor Bernal, prominent Marxist in England, has written of the shortcomings and backwardness of Soviet science, and elsewhere of errors and crudities of Soviet science. In his book on science and the planned state, Dr. Baker adds an amusing note on Soviet propaganda. And he wrote, those who praise Soviet science are sometimes almost pitifully anxious to make the most of small discoveries. Thus, a distinguished Soviet scientist, Dr. Peter Kapitsa, in a general survey of science and war in the USSR published in 1942, tells us that Soviet scientists are experimenting with a synthetic drug that is likely to have curative properties not inferior to those of Peruvian balsam. This is the only claim for Soviet pharmacology. Balsam of Peru is still sometimes used in the treatment of wounds. It was introduced into European medicine by Nicola Monards of Seville in 1560. Monards would have been flattered if he had realized that nearly four centuries later the preparation of a not inferior substitute for his balsam would be used in propaganda on behalf of a large country. Meanwhile, scientists in Britain were at work on penicillin. There has been too much boosting of discoveries on the level of a substitute for balsam of Peru. That is a quotation from Dr. Baker. One should, however, in fairness, allow an opposing view to be heard, this time from a speech by Dr. Melek, head of the Central Biological Research Institute in Czechoslovakia, to the Ideological Conference of University Scientific Workers held in 1952. And he said, there are two worlds, the world of scientific, materialistic, creative biology, which was assisting in the construction of a new world, and that of bourgeois biology, decadent, abounding in idealist superstition, and more or less openly working on behalf of the exploiting governments. In a short time, he went on, Soviet biology has managed to create completely new conditions of life for man. On the basis of newly discovered biological laws, biology was not only regulating the heredity of plants and animals, but was also using extensively the creative capacity of microorganisms. 
It had multiplied crop yields and the productivity of livestock breeding, evolved new useful plants and transformed deserts into fertile lands. It was realizing the greatest task, the fulfillment of Stalin's plan to transform nature. Imperialist biological discoveries like penicillin and streptomycin only served the profiteering interests of a limited number of concerns, not those of the broad masses. Instead of improving man's lot, science in the imperialist countries was producing the most complex weapons for his destruction. So that is Melek's speech, exalting the fables of Lysenko above the work of Fleming, Florey and Chain, which of course led to penicillin. It is, however, important not to attach too much weight to isolated incidents or to statements by particular individuals. There is no great political or religious movement without its scandals due to the ignorance and stupidity of some of its followers. The history of science in Western Europe shows many instances of the persecution of sciences and the inept handling of scientific matters, and it is easy but misleading to make an impressive catalogue of such incidents. The important issue is whether they are accidental events attributable to human weakness, or whether they are the results of the inexorable working out of the fundamental principles of the movement under examination. It is thus important to assess in an objective way the world standing of science in the Soviet Union. Is it what would have been expected of a superpower comparable with the United States of America in so many other respects? In an attempt to answer this question, John Baker, an Oxford biologist, asked seven of his colleagues, lecturers in the departments of physical chemistry, organic chemistry, botany, zoology and physiology in Oxford, to make a list of the two dozen most important discoveries made between the two great wars, giving no reason for his request. He included two socialists and two others who adhered to no party, and he didn't know the political views of the remainder. And he found that the countries where the work was done was preeminently the United States, Germany and Britain. There was no mention of any work done in the Soviet Union, in spite of all the propaganda for Soviet science. Another way of assessing the standing of Soviet science is to make use of the scientific literature. One of the hallmarks of scientific distinction is to be invited to give a major lecture at a large international conference. The total numbers of such lectures from various countries invited to four large conferences in Paris, Tokyo, Munich and Berkeley are the following figures. United States of America, 54. West Germany, 10. Great Britain 10, France 11, USSR 11, Japan 18, Denmark 6, and so on. Another index is the number of times articles from different countries are published in those journals specializing in the rapid publication of important new results. Some figures for 1982 are United States 114, West Germany 42, Great Britain 19, France 18, USSR 7, Japan 14, Denmark 6, Switzerland 22, Italy 14, Poland 6, and so on. And if these figures are now divided by the total populations of the countries concerned, the conclusion is inescapable. The quantity of first-rate science coming from the Soviet Union is among the lowest of all the countries with substantial research programs. In absolute quantity, it is comparable with that from a medium-sized European country. These figures may be criticized on some grounds. There is a tendency for an untypically large number of speakers to be drawn from the host country, although this is not always the case. 
particularly when the organization of the conference is in the hands of an international committee. None of the conferences used to obtain the above figures were held in the Soviet Union, so this may be part of the reason for the low Soviet representation. However, that is also significant in another way. Large international conferences are seldom held in the Soviet Union, mainly because of the difficulty of obtaining entry visas, and indeed the impossibility for the nationals of several important countries to go there. This indeed reduces the opportunities for the younger Russian scientists to meet scientists from other countries, and these restrictions have been chronicled in great detail by Zorez Medvedev. The international journals used to obtain the above figures were published in the United States and Holland, and this again might give a bias against the Soviet scientists. They do indeed tend to publish in their own journals, but some of them do publish in the international journals used in the survey. It is thus not forbidden to do so, and indeed might well be encouraged, as it is a source of some prestige to have a paper accepted by such journals. It might possibly be said also that one of the reasons for the poor quality of Soviet science is the devastation suffered by that country during the Second World War. This would be a plausible excuse for a decade or so after the war, but not when these surveys were made. Western Germany suffered a similar devastation, and a whole generation of scientists were lost or fled into exile during the Nazi years. But now science in Germany has recovered its former strength, as is evident from the figures quoted. A revealing comment was made in Physics Today, that is an American magazine of physics, by a most respected theoretical physicist. In an editorial in Physics Today, Professor Robert Marshak, president of the American Physical Society, discussed the perils of curbing scientific freedom. And he asks, why has the Soviet Union found it necessary to rely so heavily on Western technology? Science education in the Soviet Union is a source of envy to those of us who are concerned with the crisis in our own schools. Individually, Soviet scientists are as dedicated and creative as any in the world. The Soviet government is generous in its support of basic and applied science. And yet, he went on, experimental science in the Soviet Union is scandalously bad. Much of the explanation, I believe, he said, is in the fact that the Soviets have created barriers to free communication for their own scientists, not unlike those that some would like to impose here. So this is the objective measure of the state of science in what was once one of the great superpowers of the world, a country that exalts science, that has numerous huge universities where scientific studies have high priority that honors its scientific academicians with lavish favors, that founded science cities, that poured out ceaseless propaganda praising the excellence of its scientific achievements, that poured scorn on the decadent science of the West, that claimed to found its ideology on scientific principles and to be the one nation able to lead mankind to a glorious and scientific heaven on earth. The failure of Soviet science was indeed one of the principal factors that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was simply not able to keep up technologically with the West. And this disparity was particularly notable in the field of modern electronics, especially in the fast computers that are now essential in so many areas of our lives. Unable to make their own, they made great efforts to import or smuggle computers and microchips into the Soviet Union from the West, but this proved to be quite inadequate. And so the final verdict on Marxist science is, by their fruits, you will know them. And now we've finished our survey 
of the many questions raised by the relationship of science to belief. And in this survey, we have ranged over the whole of human history, from early man to quantum mechanics. We have discussed the ideas and achievements of many scientists, philosophers, and theologians. This is a vast field, and I am only too conscious of the inadequacy of my own knowledge and understanding. The limitations of time have forced me to be very brief, to select only a few strands from the complex tapestry of human thought. What I have said is inevitably inadequate, and doubtless I have not done justice to many important aspects. Nevertheless, I hope that I have said enough to get you started on your own voyage of discovery, and that you will eventually be able to develop and correct what I have been able to tell you. So may God bless you and give you strength and inspiration to continue your studies. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.